everybody. Is it on? There we go. Good evening, everybody. Well, we're going to continue on. We'll just get straight to it. We're going to continue on in the book of Exodus. We saw last week in the beginning of Exodus 34 how God came down and declared himself to Moses that he is the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. We saw how Moses responded by bowing his head in worship. We saw how Moses petitioned the Lord according to how God revealed about himself. We saw that um, God was revealing himself. Tonight we'll look at renewing, how God is renewing the covenant in verses 10 to 28. And by God's grace, next week we'll see how God is how Moses is reflecting God's glory. So I'd ask you to stand with me tonight as we would stand and we would pray and we would read from God's Word from Exodus chapter 34, verses 10 to 28. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that indeed we stand on the promises of God. Lord, we thank you that those promises are certain, they're sure. They're unalterable. They're unchangeable. They will never, ever disappoint. They will never, ever fade away. They are forever and ever ours because they are the promises of God in Christ Jesus for His children. And we thank You that You are holy God. Lord, let us never forget that You're holy. And yet in Your holiness... You come down to us. And so, Lord, as we look at your word again tonight, we ask, Lord God, because we desperately need it. We are incapable in and of ourselves to understand such a magnificent word from a holy God. So we ask through the power of the Holy Spirit, you give us wisdom and understanding and insight to what you would say to us this night. We ask it so that we can grow in our sanctification as we grow in our understanding and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it's for the glory of God and of Christ alone we ask these things. Amen. This is what God says to us tonight. And he said, Behold, I'm making a covenant before all the people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among you whom you shall see who... Whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited to eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread, 
Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. In the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. All that open the womb are mine, all your male livestock, your firstborn of cow and sheep. The firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed." Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of the weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders." No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until morning. The best of the first fruits of the ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. It's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We'll see tonight that God answers, God warns, God renews, and God codifies. God answers, God warns, God renews, and God codifies. We see that God answers. Look what it says in, in 1 to 9. Or, or, or I'm sorry, verse 9, actually. nine. And, um, God answers. I messed up already. God answers. Remember that Moses made a petition to the Lord. He made a petition in verse 9. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the word go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take for us as and take us for your inheritance. Remember that he petitioned God on the basis of what God revealed about himself. And now God answers in verse 10. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the works of the Lord. It, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. The first thing we need to notice is that God said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Moses, let's be clear. I am making a covenant. A covenant. You're not making a covenant. I am making the covenant. This is the covenant of God. And God has promised that he would fulfill all parts of the covenant. There's no covenant with God that we could possibly keep. We need God to fulfill the terms of the covenant. We in no way can keep the law. We in no way can be righteous in and of ourselves. But notice what he says. Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. Your people, Moses. Moses is the leader of these people. But the word people is interesting because the word people literally means nations. Before the nations, I am making a covenant. Why nations? I thought they were a separate people unto themselves. 
Well, you know, you got to go back in the history of the, of the children of Israel. They are, uh, they're mutts, for lack of a better term. You ask, what nationality are you? Well, I'm a little of this, and I'm a little of that, and I'm a little of everything else. You go back to Jacob, where he had, uh, 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 he had Rachel and Leah. And then when they couldn't have kids, they, you know, for whatever reason, we have Bilah and we have Zilpha mixed in, into it. So they're already a mixed race. And then when they come out of Egypt, now God puts Manassas and Ephraim into the mix. Egyptians into the mix. They truly were a nations. They were nations of people. If we look and if we take this and we look forward into the future as the scriptures let us do, we read in Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 and 10, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That God was always about saving nations. God was about people, saving people for himself. That of all the nations of the earth, God was going to make a single people for himself, the people of God. We would have to ask ourselves tonight, are we among the people of God? Just because we're sitting in church does not make us the people of God. The people of God is, is, is a decision within our own selves to bow our knees to, to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance of sins and determining to live for the glory of God. God also says that He will do marvelous and wonderful things. What I'm about to do is a marvel, do marvelous things in all the earth, He says. To do marvels literally means to be wonderful, to be amazing, to be separate. What's God mean by that? Well, this is what I would say. If I was writing a commentary, this is what I would say. God is saying that he will show himself to be separate from all the other gods of the land they were going to possess. Therefore, making the Israelites separate from all other nations. What separated them was not their blood, not their DNA, but their God is what made them separate. God says, I am going to do marvelous and wonderful things through you. It's an amazing thing of which I will do for you. They were to be a separate people because God was their God. In Deuteronomy 7, 6, God says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You are to be separate, Israelites. We also are to be separate. We are to be different as God's children. On this side of the cross, on this side of the new covenant, God would say to us, as He says through Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, Therefore, Go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. How are we at being a separate people unto the Lord? How are we really being a separate people unto the Lord? It really matters what we do. By ourselves, really matters what we watch, what we listen to, and what we believe. What we put into our mind separates us. We need to know that God has called us to be in the world, but not 
of the world. And as we are in the world, we are to be a light to the other nations. We are to be the ones to share the good news of Jesus Christ, that Christ came into the world to save sinners. He says, it's an awesome thing of which I will do. Awesome means fearful, terrifying thing of which God will do with the children of Israel. What kind of terrifying, awesome things did God do? We have the written record. We can look forward. How about, think about the awesome, terrifying things that they saw already. They saw the army of Pharaoh drowned. They saw the Red Sea open. They went over on dry land. When it says that when Pharaoh and his armies went through, God made it muddy. Right? And their wheels got stuck and the waters came over them. They saw a pillar of fire and a cloud. They saw the mountain shaking with, with, uh, with thunder and lightning and smoke and fire. And it was a dreadful thing, it says. They've already seen amazing things. And God says, I'm going to do amazing things with you. I'd be like, what more amazing can it be than this? How amazing it was to Ben to watch the walls of Jericho fall. Imagine that. I can, you know, I picture myself as one of the one of the soldiers marching around quiet for seven days, going, "What? It, who in the world would ever do this? Like this is the dumbest military move you could ever possibly think of." And yet, on that seventh day, after the seventh turn around. God caused the walls not to fall down, but to fall out. Literally fell out. Literally, they made ladders for themselves to go up into. the. And you can go there today. I've stood at the historic site of Jericho. It's a real city. I've seen the walls falling out. It actually happened as God said. You go on later, they're battling people, and, 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 and God causes the sun to stand still for a day. Imagine that. What would happen if the sun stood still? And God didn't intervene. Suppose the earth just stopped spinning on its axis. What would happen to us? We'd all float off and die. Gravity wouldn't be. Yet God is awesome enough, incredible enough, to cause the sun to stand still and gravity still take place because God created the laws of nature. God has done awesome things for the children of Israel. God has done awesome things for us. Have you ever stopped and think, God, you, you really do awesome things? Maybe how about how many of the things that we take for granted on a daily basis who say that is an awesome thing from the Lord? I'm, I'm still, you call me crazy, but I think it's an awesome thing when I'm driving down the road and the light turns green. I say that is a gift from God. Maybe because I have such a problem, I don't know. I'm, I'm excited when you go into Walmart parking lot at Teterboro and you get a spot close to the store. That's an amazing work of God to me. I have to thank God for those things because if we don't thank God in the small things, what makes us think we're going to thank Him in the big things? And if we're honest, the big things in life are far and few in between. Life is made up of the small things. And that's why small decisions matter. The little decision matters because eventually one day it may become a big decision. God does awesome and wonderful things. Because he is a God who in his, in his essence is awesome and who works wonders for his children. Read the Psalms. Count your blessings and you will see that God 
does awesome things. He tells the children of Israel, I am going to do awesome things for you. But then God says, I'm going to do awesome things with you and through you. Well, then God warns, lest they get proud, lest they say, hey, we're God's people. Because of, let's be honest, we have the book. We know that's exactly what happened to them. They got proud. And their pride was their downfall. God gives them a warning. He says, observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will. We need to understand when God says, I will. God's saying, it's going to be my work. I'm going to do it through you, but it's my work. I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Notice what he says. Observe what I command you this day. Observe means to keep, to watch, and to guard. You and I are to keep and to watch and guard God's word given to us. We're not to, we, don't, we, don't have, we do have no rights to negotiate what's written in here. No rights whatsoever. This is God's holy word, and He will hold us accountable. He tells us in His word that those who teach God's word will be held to higher judgment because we are entrusted with giving to you what God says, but you are also entrusted with checking what I say, what any pastor up here says, whether it's John, Mike, or Len, or myself, when we preach God's word, you are responsible to go home and see if the things that we say are so. We are to guard and watch and keep what God says. And as I was studying, it struck me that he says, observe what I command you this day. Wait a second, he's up there 40 days. We understand he means by this day. What does God mean when he says this day? And and this is what it spoke to me. This is what I believe it is. That God is telling Moses that what God is saying this day is sufficient. There's no more words and there's no more days. What I'm telling you here and now is sufficient. You need to add nothing to it. The reason the church in America and other parts of the world has gone astray is because we, they have decided that God's word is not sufficient. The issue is not sexuality and marriage. Those are issues. But they became issues within the church, compromised in the church, because long ago, long ago, they took issue with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that began taking God's word and saying, well, it's not really, well, it could be, you know, do you really think it happened that way? Do you really, uh, well, I don't believe that. Well, we need to believe what God says. What God says is sufficient. It is more, it is not only sufficient, it just meets need. It more than meets our needs. It more than supplies for us. Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God, is more than we can ever imagine. And as I was thinking about this, I thought about the hymn, How Firm a Foundation. Listen to what it says. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. What more can He say than to you He has said to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? God has nothing else to say. 
He's told us right here. Everything we need, as Peter tells us, for life and for godliness is found right here. Nowhere else. Has God given us excellent teachers and books to help us? Absolutely. But those excellent teachers and those good books will always point us back to God's Word. To God's Word is sufficient. Observe and keep what I command you this day, he says. Let us not err from Scripture. Let us not compromise on Scripture. Let us believe what it says, even if we struggle with it and if there's things that we don't understand. And let's be honest, it's the Word of God. He who has been His counselor, who has known the mind of the Lord. I'm not, I don't know, I don't understand everything in this. Neither will you. There is mystery involved. He is God after all. As soon as I know everything about God, guess what? He's no longer God. I'm on equal plane with God if I understand everything. God's word is more than sufficient. And that's why later on, when the children of Israel are in the promised land, he says to them in Deuteronomy 4, 2, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. And to reinforce this truth of do not add to these words, observe what I command you this day, God warns and he commands about covenants with the inhabitants of the land. Look at what it says in verse 12. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. Don't go and make covenants. Don't go and make agreements with people. I make a covenant with you. It's the only covenant you need to worry about. He says, take care that you don't make a covenant. That you don't become buddy-buddy with the inhabitants of the land. He goes, make sure that when you go in, after I drive them out, verse 13, that you tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashrams. Their objects of worship you are to destroy. The ashram would be a wooden pole or a wooden carving, usually of a sexual nature, to be quite honest. Um, he says you are to tear them down. You are to destroy them. You want no remnants of the way they worship and of their quote-unquote gods. You do not want them. It's the very same thing that we're to do. We're to do within our own selves. What does God tell us through the pen of Paul to the church in Colossae? In Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of these, the wrath of God is coming. God tells the children of Israel, Tear down, completely destroy, destroy the people, destroy the nations, get rid of any resemblance of their worship, and put them to death. Put all of that to death, and you and I are to put to death that which is earthly within us. God says in verse 14, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God is jealous for you. As he says in Exodus 20, when he gave the first commandments, the first, ten, the first tablet of ten commandments, that God himself wrote and made his own tablets and wrote with his own finger, now Moses makes and Moses now writes. 
He says, For you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Well, what's that all mean that God is jealous? R. Kent Hughes, in quoting the great J.I. Packers, Knowing God, writes this. God's jealousy is not a compound... Pay attention to this. This is so true. God's jealousy is not a compound of frustration, envy, and spite, as human jealousy so often is but appears instead as a praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. When God told Moses that his name is Jealous, he meant that he demands from those whom he has loved and redeemed utter and absolute loyalty and will vindicate his claim by stern action against them if they betray his love by unfaithfulness. Wow, I like that. God says, I love you with an everlasting love. I am jealous for you. But if you walk away from me, if you forget your first love, if you walk away from me, judgment will come upon you. Not in a vindictive way. It's just a natural result. And of course, we know the story. Years later, here comes the Babylonians. Here comes the Assyrians. How often have we forgotten God's love? How often have we gone astray and we find ourselves, how did I get so far away from God? Well, the book of Hebrews tells us to pay more careful attention lest we drift away. We know that we can be, I know because I like to fish, be on a boat. And next thing you know, how did I get out here? Wasn't paying attention, was just doing my own thing. And next thing you know, I'm so far away from shore, further than I ever wanted to be. God then goes on to say, in verses 15 and 16, Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited to eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. Why does God got to use such a strong word? Right? A word to kind of, right? I remember as a little kid in church, I'd laugh at that word, like, ooh, the pastor's that whore, right? Um, No, it's a very purposeful word. It's a very purposeful word. And let's be clear, God only uses right words. Right words that fit the occasion. The word whore means to prostitute, i.e., also known as have sex with a partner to whom one is not married. Listen to this. For bribes, favors, or other kinds of payment. That's the dictionary of biblical language. That's the standard across the board for theological study. Why does he say whore? He says, listen, if you go and you make a covenant with the people, what you are doing, in essence, is saying that I am insufficient because you're looking for the favor of their God. 
You're looking to get favor and thanks to them. What you are telling me is that I am insufficient and I am unable to bless you and provide for you. That's what they would be telling God. That's why he says in Exodus 23, 25, You shall serve the Lord your God and He will bless your bread and your water. And I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the numbers of your days. God had already promised them, I'm going to give you everything. You will lack absolutely nothing. So therefore, don't go and whore after the other gods. And unfortunately, that's exactly what they did. And unfortunately, that's often what we do, is it not? Happiness is found over here. Oh, this will expedite my whatever instead of being faithful to the Lord, forgetting God. R. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, says they would make covenants for this reason. First, as a treaty of mutual advantage. I know it makes sense. It's to my benefit to make a covenant with these people. I'll have peace and they won't bother me. And, and, and you know, uh, No. He goes, then it becomes an invitation to share in worship. We can't share in worship in any way with anyone who does not worship the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. We cannot. We cannot compromise in it. I often struggle as I am invited by the town often, and now the town has invited every other pastor in town. Am I mingling myself with other gods? Pray for me, because that's a struggle. Because I know what I believe, and I know what I say. And I know what the other, quote-unquote, pastors have said. It doesn't resemble God at all in any way, shape, or form. But I pray that I would always be a light, and I would proclaim the gospel as I should. Then an invitation to share in worship. Then the eating of a sacrifice made to a pagan god or goddess. And finally, intermarriage with the Canaanites. Notice the downward progression. Right? The same way the person who walks in the way of sinners sits in the seat of the mockers and the scorners. and all. It's a downward progression. Once you make the step of saying, well, this is just to my benefit. This is a smart thing. I'm going to compromise with the world. It's going to lead you down a path of which you'll find yourself, wow, how did I get here? And finally, intermarriage with the Canaanites, with the result that all the the distinctions, with all, with the result that all distinctions may in time be expected to dissolve. Listen to this. What begins as an agreement between friends eventuates into the extinction of Israel as a people uniquely covenanted to God. Now that's what happens when we let sin into our lives. When we run into sin, we eventually become just like the world. All distinctiveness of Christ in us is lost. It's gone. We no longer become the people of God. May God help us to be faithful. Verse 17, he says, For you shall not make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. He already told them that in the Ten Commandments, the first ones. 
You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now we may think that in the ancient world, yeah, they made images and they bowed down to them. And there's still parts of the world in which people do that. You go, I've never been there, but I've seen pictures. You can go to some Asian countries and there's big Buddhas that they bow down to. People still do idol worship. Let's not think, well, I don't bow down to a statue. I'm not that dumb. But do I bow down to the American dream? Do I bow down to money? Do I bow down to personal happiness? You understand what I'm trying to beat us up, but just we have to ask ourselves these things. Do I bow down to those things? Are they my idols? God goes on to say, he goes, you shall keep, in verse 18 to 20, you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you. And at the time appointed in the month of Abib, for in the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. All that, well, he's reminding them, listen, the feast of unleavened bread, the Passover, you're to keep that. Don't forget it. All that open the womb are mine. Listen, I'm the author of life. The firstborn are mine. Of all your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep. Of course, to be the firstborn of a cow and sheep meant certain death, didn't it? You were literally offered to God. The firstborn of a donkey shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborns of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. We see the laws of redemption. God said, let's make it clear here. The firstborn are mine. The firstborn of your males are mine. The firstborn of your females are mine too, he would go on later to say. What's he mean by this? Everything is mine. It is by my good hand that you have every good thing. None shall appear before me empty-handed. Yet we sing the song, empty-handed I come. Don't we really come empty-handed to God? What's he mean? We go to offer to the Lord. We don't come with nothing. We come with grateful hearts. No, we should. Thankful hearts. And we should give of the Lord the first fruits of what God has given to us. Each day of the week, we should set aside what we decide in our heart to give to the Lord with joy, for the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Do we grudgingly give to the Lord? Do we wince our teeth and we say, I'm going to give it in faith, but I understand that. My wife and I have five kids. We, grow, we understand that. But should we? Should we, after 20, 30, 40 years of the Lord's faithfulness, still go, I'm not sure? Or should we say, of course He will. He's going to come through. He always has and He always will. It would also beg the question, what do I have to give the Lord? Is there anything I'm not giving to the Lord that God is telling me? I want you to give this to me. I want you to hand this over to me. 
Are we not handing it over? Do not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Verse 21, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In the plowing time and in a harvest you shall rest. God's going over again. God is here now mixing the Ten Commandments that He gave in chapter 20, and He's mixing in civil laws with it. Here is one of the Ten Commandments of keeping the Sabbath day holy. But notice it says, in plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. I think what God is saying, listen, you don't have to worry about making sure. Listen, be diligent. When it's time to sow a plow, you plow. When it's time to reap, reap. But if we ever sit there and think, well, if, you know, if I stop doing this, it's just, it's, you know, particularly within the agrarian society, it said, well, if I don't plow, I'm not going to get the whole field. Or if I don't reap today, I'm not going to get all the harvest in. Then God is telling us that when you sit and rest, you'll find that, you have more than enough. Do I rest and I trust in God that He is able to provide for me all that I need? All that I need. Do I need to be running around and making sure everything's done? Take time and rest. God cares about your physical rest. Now, how many of us have a problem with too much physical rest? Right? Well, we should be working. We should be active. Verse 22, he says, You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. God is saying, Make sure you remember that there's these days of which I put into place that you are to make sure you remember. I put these in place so that you don't forget me. And, matter of fact, he says in verses 23 and 24, Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. Why the males? The head of the household. To lead your family, as Mike told us in Sunday school this morning. Three times of the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. In other words, because when you leave, your land, when you go to wherever the tabernacle is, or if you, Jesus' day, you go to just listen, your land's going to be okay. I'm going to watch over your possessions. Make sure you appear before me. Verses 25 and 26 says, You shall not offer the blood of any, by sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. Remember what God told the children of Israel. You make your bread. Don't make it the normal way with leaven. And, and there's a time process. Just make it without the leaven. Make it quick because I'm going to come and I'm going to pass over. I'm going to destroy the firstborn of those who do not have the blood over, their, over the lentil of their doors. And it's going to be quick. Get up and eat and go. Make sure you don't leave the sacrifice until the morning. Remember God commanded them. If there's any food left over, throw it in a fire and burn it all. There's no doggy bags. You're nothing taken home. Burn it. Then he says, The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall bring the best. 
God warns him later on, don't bring anything lame, don't bring anything blind, bring the best. How often we should give God the best. Do we give God the best? Do we give God the best of our time and our strength? Do we even give the God's house the best? I, 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 you know, people have good hearts, and I, you know, but it just always amazed me, even as a little kid growing up in a church and watching the things that people would donate to the church, and I'm like, you're giving that thing? Who wants that? If you don't want it, what makes you think God wants it? <laughs> Do we give God the best? Then he has this little strange phrase on the end, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. What is that about? Oh, well, that means that really, you know, if you eat meat and then you drink uh, milk and it knocks a protein off and then you're not able to die, maybe, I've heard that. Probably what's referring to here is more likely the pagan practices of the people of the land. That's what they did in their religious worship. I think it also means something even more. I mean, how, how, how cruel it is to take a young goat and boil it in its own mother's milk. There's like just something like cruel about that. Like it just, that's, oh, wait, you take the mother's milk and you boil its baby in it? Essentially, that's what he's saying. That, that's just how I've always taken it. Right or wrong, I don't know. Commentators are disagreeing on it. But he says, you should not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. For whatever reason it is, God said, don't do it. So therefore, don't do it. Why? I don't know why. God said, don't do it, so let's not do it. It's just, it's, let's just keep it simple, right? Apply Occam's razor to it. You know who Occam is, right? The simplest answer is usually the best answer. What's the simplest answer? God said, don't do it. Therefore, don't do it. R. Kent Hughes says of all these regulations and rules, he sums it up, I think he sums it up best. So we can summarize these regulations in three principles. Of all that God said to Moses on the mountain, he says these regulations in three principles. One, maintain a regular pattern of worship. Enter God's holy rest and offer God your very best. Maintain a regular pattern of worship. Not just Sunday mornings and Sunday nights, but a daily pattern of worship. Enter into God's holy rest. How do you enter into God's holy rest? By a regular pattern of worship and study. And offer God your very best. And finally, we see that God codifies the covenant. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Write these words down. The words of God have come to an end. I believe it's in Jeremiah. It says, the words of Jeremiah are ended. The words of God to Moses are ended. Write them down. This day, there's no more words. There's nothing else to add to it. Write it down. You have a copy, I have a copy. Copy of what? Everything that God, we just wrote here? No, of the Ten Commandments. 
And we also have all these other summary explanations of the Ten Commandments. We don't believe they were written down. They were ten words. Moses was to teach these to Aaron. Aaron was to teach them to his sons. And Aaron and his sons were to teach them to the congregation. And it says, so he was there, meaning Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. You know, this is the second time that he was there for 40 days and 40 nights. It's the second time. He neither ate bread nor drank water. I remember back in the day in, uh, of, of the revival of the evangelical church in the 80s, the 40-day fast, right? Probably not good. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. God has given us his holy word. It is for us codified in this book, the Bible, of the Old and New Testaments, nothing in between the Old and the New Testaments, no intertestamental books. It's these 66 books of God's word are ours. He has nothing more to say, nothing more to add to them. The words of God are for us and for our children. Do we hold this with reverence and awe? Is this really the most important book to me? Or as I've confessed in the past, is the blacklist more important? Is Star Wars and or whatever the show you may watch is. Not that it's wrong to watch something, provided it's going to edify you. But really, how do we really treat, you know, how we treat this is a very good indication of how we treat God here and here. God answers Moses. Next week we'll see how this reflected within Moses and how it should reflect within us. Let's pray. Well, let's stand and let's pray and we'll close in the song. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is all that we need. It's more than sufficient. And we ask, Lord God, that you would help us to be faithful that we would desire you more than anything else, that we would not make covenants with the world, that we would not acquiesce to the ideals and the thoughts and the patterns of this world. Lord, I pray that you would help me and help my brothers and sisters to put to death whatever is earthly within us, that we would crucify the old man, and that we would submit humbly to you, that we would be found faithful in obeying your word, Help us, Lord God, to not turn to the left nor to the right. Help us, Lord God, to stand firm in a culture, in a world that will scream for us to compromise, will threaten us if we do not compromise. May we stand firm. May we stand firm in the truth. May we do it for the glory and by the grace of God alone. Amen and amen. Let's sing the song. We're actually going to close on a doxology. So.
Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Be blessed.